Welcome to episode 124 of the Coot Street Podcast, a weekly discussion of science fiction, fantasy, and related ephemera, hosted by Gary K. Wolfe and Jonathan Strahan. This week, we're joined by O'Henry, World Fantasy and British Fantasy Award winner Graham Joyce, the author of 14 novels, including The Facts of Life, The Limits of Enchantment, young adult novels Twok, Do the Creepy Thing, and Three Ways to Snog an Alien, the best-selling memoirs of a master forger, The Silent Land, and new novel Some Kind of Fairy Tale. Welcome, Graham. Hi, thank, good thank, to be here. Thank you for joining us again. <laughs> Let's see if we can remember half of what we talked about when we had some rum in front of us. Well, I think, and and hello, we're laughing. We're, uh, hello, I, yeah. yeah, I know we're all we're all we're all laughing, trying to remember what it, what those brilliant things were we said to each other in Toronto and. The fact that I can't remember exactly what they were is probably a good thing because I won't know if we're repeating ourselves or not. It's seven a.m. here. <laughs> the, greatness, I, the greatness of that conversation—the greatness of that conversation—will have to um, just live in the ether. I mean, it was—it was very good. Uh, I just can't remember a single word of it. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I'm sure we—you know—we talked about writing. I'm sure we talked about the nature of fantasy, and we talked about the new book. And I'm as we will now, I'm sure. And and you know the the whole breakdown. In fact, maybe it's it's a something to start with as a, a point of conversation. Uh, some kind of fairy tale is a, is a really interesting book because it's one of those kind of fantasy novels, I guess, that doesn't have a lot of overt fantasy in it. Uh, do you think that it's important that a fantasy novel should have a lot of fantasy in it, or is it still fantasy if it doesn't? Well. I mean, you've put your finger on the thing that um, that I guess makes mine a little bit different from mainstream fantasy, and that's that um, really, I guess, the main focus is always in this world and not in the fantasy world. And often what fantasy readers want, and, you know, they're clear about what they want, is a walled garden, and you... Uh, normally expect the, the writer to take you inside that walled garden and and lock the door and throw away the key for the hours that you spend inside there. Whereas what I do, I guess, is is, is I'm always knocking down the bricks of the walled garden because I'm more interested in what can leak from the fantasy world inside the walled garden into this world. And and that's a very different model of fantasy, I think, than 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 the one we're often presented with. Um, comes from a, a, a somewhat different tradition of fantasy, so that's the difference, as far as I understand it. Is it more about using fantasy as a tool to illuminate our world than to tell a fantastical adventure set in a secondary world? Oh, absolutely, it is a tool. Um, I'm very interested in the idea of where the human mind goes to at times of psychic distress, and um, because because um, those times can be the most revealing about human nature. And there's a relationship between vulnerability and the imagination. So when you start to look at a mind in, in, in psychic distress in some way, um, you, you, you arrive at the conclusion, or at least I do, that there's, there's no, no rational basis for our emotional lives, the way we live our emotional lives. So in a way, I'm, yes, I'm using, I'm using fantasy and the supernatural and And now, as sometimes happens on the Crude Street Podcast, a technical problem. Skype's crashed, but we're back. Hello again, Graham. Hello again, Gary. Hello. You were telling us about our uh, the, the, the impact of fantasy on our emotional lives or how they had no basis in reality when, when, when we uh, were disconnected, Graham. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I, I think there's, there's, no, um, there's never a rational basis for our emotional lives, it seems to me. And... and, and to explore the psyche on that basis, um, I'm introducing fantasy and the supernatural because uh, the psyche in distress under those conditions is much more illuminating than, I don't know, some kind of exploration of social realism or naturalism. I guess it's because, I mean, when I read well, your books, it, it all comes back to, uh, it's, it's almost all about, it's about family life and people interacting. Those are the, the, the major forces in a lot of the books of yours that I've read. That are, and that's what seems to me to be the, the thing you come back to again and again, and that you come back to in some kind of fairy tale. 
Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'm always interested in group dynamics and how groups behave. And of course, the family is is one type of group. And it, it always has occurred to me that that groups and families in particular operate on a kind of um, sub-rational level that we might use words like telepathy or mm. intersubjectivity or something like that to, to, to understand each other. So um, I'm always interested in, in what, what's happening with groups or families just under the surface of what, of what appears to the eye or to the ear. And um, I, I must say I have a lot of fun writing about that. And I, and I always feel like there's, there's hidden stuff going on. And this is something that drives my books very much, the idea of, of hidden agendas and, and um, hidden motivations just under the surface of the, of the group. Um, I, I guess uh, fantasy and the supernatural come, comes in a lot because it was there in my, in my family background. Um, I, had a, I had a grandmother who, who often had what you might call psychic visions, but really couldn't be bothered with them, you know, never made a fuss about them. Whereas in a, in a narrative, mm-hmm. in the construction of a narrative, what you do when you introduce fantasy and the supernatural is you increase the stakes incrementally um, until there's some sort of crisis and usually order is, re- is restored in a, in, a, in a, say, in a cosy horror novel or, or cosy supernatural novel. Order is restored at the end of it. Whereas in, in real life, I think people are experiencing these things over and over again without any kind of solution to them and without them ever actually posing a real threat. I mean, in the case of my in, in the case of my grandmother, you know, these things used to happen, and she'd just push it aside because she had to go and peel the carrots and make the dinner, uh, and and that's 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 how the family worked. She would report something back to my aunties, in other words, my my mum's sisters, yeah, and would say, oh, how strange that is. Uh, but now we have to get on with life. <laughs> so so narrative op- op- operates on a very different basis to the way that real life deals with these minor intrusions of the supernatural or the fantastic. One of the things that struck me as interesting about about that is um, the three of the titles of a book, the three books that I consider as a, as a, if not a related trilogy, at least as thematically similar, all have titles that sound like the sort of things that people who don't really approve of fantasy might say. I mean, some kind of fairy tale is a disdainful phrase for a lot of realist people. The Limits of Enchantment talks about the Limits of Enchantment. And The Facts of Life sounds like my uncle saying, the facts of life are more important than that stuff you're reading, Sonny. <laughs> uh, it's, is, is that true that there's there, there's that dialogue going on between, between uh, I don't know, uh, the realistic, pragmatic approach to life and the fact that fantasy is in it, is, is involved with that some way? Oh, totally, Gary. I mean, you, you, you're bang on with that. There's the, the, I've tr- I have consciously or unconsciously rehearsed in the titles the kind of shuttle that goes on in my own mind when I'm writing these novels. Um, the shuttle between the credulous believer in, in, in me and the, the rational skeptic that just thinks it's all a load of hooey and, you know, and uh, yeah. it'd be much more macho if we dismissed it all and got on with our lives. Yeah, it, it's exactly there. It's exactly there. And I live on that shuttle because it, for years and years, I've never quite resolved that argument inside myself. Well, you're still somewhat uncomfortable with fantasy? No, I'm totally, I'm totally <laughs> comfortable with it, but... but um, the problem, the problem is, is that I've had a, a kind of rationalist upbringing. Um, I've been exposed to fantasy and the supernatural in the way that I just described mm. to you. But at every step of my education, I've been tra- trained to disbelieve it. <laughs> so um, there's there's a battle going on that that's still going on, and I know I know that the rationalist position is useful but wrong at a certain point. It gets completely wrong. It, you know, rationality is wonderful. It's a wonderful tool. But there are people who, who I think, make too large a claim for what it can do. So um, even though I've been trained, you know, over, over, over many years to uphold the principles of rationality, there's another larger part of me that knows that, that, that that's wrong. 
I think also the, uh, well, I, I know exactly the attitude you're talking about. And we run into it in our field quite a bit there. As we all know, any number of, uh, of writers in, in, our, in our mutual profession of teaching in the university who, who can't believe that fantasy or science fiction is worthwhile. But on the other hand, I find myself equally impatient with people who claim that realistic fiction isn't worthwhile and that the only thing worth reading is fantasy or science fiction. Um, there's a kind oh, of reverse yeah. snobber. That's, that's a that's a, yeah, that's a crazy position, and and uh, it, it's it's the I don't know, it's a disappointing thing I think about our our genre communities, if you like, our science fiction and fantasy communities that are stuffed full of wonderful people, but sometimes you try to have a conversation about um, you know some some canonical writer outside of the. Or even non-canonical writer outside right. of the of genres, and you and they look at you completely blankly and and don't understand the references that you're making to these to these wonderful writers. And um, you know, I have I have um, I have my academic background, so I've you know I've encountered and been influenced by so many of these these writers that are out that live out well outside the the genre that I work in myself, and it's a source of great frustration that. That, that there's not more crossover. I mean, I understand the snobbery from people who want to dismiss fantasy and science fiction. Okay, I see where they're coming from, but I don't see how it works the other way around. When when so many fantasy and science fiction readers complain about this snobbery, I don't see why they want to hermetically seal the genre off from from mainstream fiction. I don't get it. It almost seems like the sort of thing that a I don't know. A, a hurt teenager does, you know. If you're not, you know, if you're not going to read my stuff, I'm not going to read your stuff. <laughs> well, I think there's something like that, yeah. But okay, on the other, yeah. But, but well, yeah. disrespected, disrespected people tend to do that. They they form their own um, set of values and subgroups and their own style and the rest of it. I mean, it's classic. And then they reject the um, the authority or the culture that that disrespected them in the first place. So. Really, that giant um, community is, is is only doing the same thing. Do you think? Although, that, I, I'll sorry, go ahead. Harry, no, you go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say that uh, a part of the irony of that is that some of the writers who are most associated with that kind of um, uh, traditional, uh, in, in England at least, traditional British hard-headedness, were are, are themselves very sympathetic toward fantasy. I mean, there's. Uh, there's D.H. Lawrence, who sometimes, Graham, your, your work reminds me of, but I've, Plumed Serpent is very close to being a fantasy novel. There's E.M. Forster wrote a classic science fiction story and wrote interesting, knowledgeable pieces about fantasy as a mode of writing. So I, I never thought that the two fields were as far apart as the advocates on both sides seem to believe they are. I'm, I'm sure that's absolutely right. I mean, um, you know, that, that one, one of... Um one of my favourite writers is is is, uh, is Graham Greene, and um, you know uh, he he had to go at writing ghost stories too. You know he didn't close himself off from that from that world. And um, I liked Anthony Burgess a lot, who who sometimes strays so incredibly close to science fiction and fantasy in in, in mm -hmm. his work. Um, I, I, one of one of the one of the great writers who I think was inside the other genre, if we can call it that, but who was clearly uh, writing in the fantastic was Angela Carter. Mm. Um, oh yes. Some, somehow managed to kind of kind of land herself in the in the, the world of uh, mainstream literary credibility, but writing wonderful fantastic fiction. So the, the crossover is the crossover is there. It's, it seems to be the aficionados on both sides, you know, the spokespersons who do the damage rather than the practitioners. Ah, am I getting a Gary? <laughs> no, we're, 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 we're just agreeing here. We're going to see. If, we are agreeing. Um, we are, but um, there's I don't know. There's also a performance aspect about the fantastic that seems to me is challenging. I, I don't know where I'm going with this. Challenging to a lot of mainstream writers. In other words, when somebody oh, here's a good example. Uh, let's talk about the Silent Land for a minute. Uh, that's as, as as I'm sure you're aware. That's a pretty familiar theme uh, in, in in fantasy. It's one of those things that okay, we're we're coming into a deserted village and and, and the candles are still burning, sort of thing, uh, which you handled brilliantly. But I've seen that sort of thing handled by somebody who thought they were inventing it, 
and just messing it up terribly. Oh yeah, yeah, that that's true. You often get you often get mainstream writers who who try and raid the genres for good ideas. I mean, exactly. the, the 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 thing about the Silent Land is that I wrote that deliberately with our community in mind, knowing that everyone, like you guys and people who will be listening to this podcast, will know that story very, very well right from the outset. Mm -hmm. and, exactly. and then and then trying to do something different and, and hopefully lead readers into a different position of, of the way they're going to apprehend that story by the time it comes to the end. And then, and then still, you know, you get the when I when I've cast my eyes on the on on the reviews, you still get the odd person who says, "Oh, right, well, we've seen this before, we've seen this before," uh, yeah. as if I wasn't aware of that, as if <laughs> I wasn't aware of that, and that's that's kind of disappointing because it's like one of the most obvious Twilight Zone, wonderful uh, yeah. kind of stories that, that that have been that have been handled by many different writers, and I, that was the fun of doing it, really. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean about a performance. It's like uh, it's like covering a classic in a way. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. It's, it, it is exactly. It's like it's like a, a cover story, but you introduce some, I don't know, some. You take it. You take it somewhere else. It's like a, a when I say cover story. I meant like musically covering. Uh, yeah. Something. Right. Taking it somewhere else. Do you think that we mistakenly value novelty too much when we look at the, the, the books that we're reading these days in the field? Novelty? Yeah, I mean, when, when you talk about someone looking at The Silent Land, for example, and saying, oh, well, that's an old story that's done before, uh, there's hardly any, you know, there's nothing unusual about somebody choosing to readdress the themes or basic story structures that have been used in other works. And it doesn't make the work inherently less interesting or less substantial or less valuable. And yet there's a uh, part of the dialogue that says if it's not a new idea, be it in science fiction or fantasy or horror, then it's somehow less valuable. And we're over, it seems to me maybe we are overvaluing th this sense of novelty, the fact that the idea must be new for it to be worthwhile and valid. Well, that's fascinating. I hadn't really... I hadn't really thought of it, but I think there is there is a lot of that. I mean, if you if you if you go back to um, say Elizabeth, you know Elizabethan playwriting, and not just Shakespeare, but but everybody who was who was writing around the time, they would always use an old story. They would almost always use an old story mm -hmm. or a well-known story, and um, and of course it was you know the level of insight and language that they would introduce that. To that story that was that was of interest. So I'd never really thought of it quite in that way, Jonathan. But I, I think you I think you're right. Um, uh, although I, I guess um, I went and did it again with um, with some kind of fairy tale because that 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 story really is as as old as the Tam Lin and Thomas the Rhymer uh, stories. So I wasn't doing it consciously to to kind of do cover versions, but it's just I guess where my explorations have have led me into into wanting to say that these these stories that are so oft repeated and and handled in different ways have been done so because they contain inside them some themselves something very interesting indeed okay so yep. uh, that that it's still a seem to be mined if you like it hasn't sure. been worked yet well one of the things that I think is striking about um, I guess, especially about some kind of fairy tales, you're, you're you're right. You can you can sort of take advantage of the inherent uh, strengths of of those stories and subvert them at the same time. Uh, I mean, your version of fairyland in some kind of fairy tale is, is is a lot sexier and less romantic at the same time than most of the crossing the uh, crossing the stream into fairyland kinds of uh, things. I mean. Uh, there, there's, there's. I mean, one convention which, which is clearly um, a tradition is is the fact that time travels at different uh, rates in fairyland and in our world. But the fairies themselves are kind of uh, sexy, randy. Un, they're, they're not fairy-like. They're not. They're not going to be played by Kate uh, Blanchett in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> no, they're, they're not. Um, they, they, See, I've got I've got a bee in my bonnet about the way fairies are represented. Um, uh, 
and and terrific though they are, the illustrations and 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 that that, that have, have kind of cemented the pictures of of fairies have, have I think got it completely wrong. And I, I'm I'm more interested in the idea of a fairy um, being a spirit that possesses us sometimes. You know, like in the concept of duende in Spanish flamenco. Spanish flamenco mm. dancing, they have this concept called duende, which means when when the dancer or the performer or the singer is is seized with a spirit that inhabits them. Because duende, the word duende meant uh, goblin or fairy. And oh, I didn't uh, yes, that's that's the etymology of duende. And so oh. this passionate this passionate um, spirit that that kind of seizes the performer and gets inside them is is duende and that's my idea of 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 um of the concept of fairy not some pretty thing with pointy ears and so on i mean a, a world fantasy in toronto this year there was the there were these um uh, lovely swedish writers who were on a panel i was listening talking about translation and um they they said they were talking about trolls for example in scandinavian mythology in sweden a troll you know, if I say troll, we, the three of us have probably got a pretty much similar idea in our in our heads about what we mean by that. But no, they said that in Swedish tradition, a troll was very beautiful, very tall, looked exactly like a human being, except that they had a cow's tail. Mm-hmm. And this was as far away from troll as you could as you can imagine the vid- visual representations are. The interesting thing to me was that you could be mistaken. When you see another human being, you might be looking at, you might really be looking at a troll or a fairy. So I'm interested in the idea that they look like us. They look exactly like us, but they're not of us. They're like this duende fairy or goblin that seizes us and takes us places. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, no, no. no. But, uh... Well, that that raises a, a question about. I mean, were you thinking about issues like that? Uh, obviously, there's there's a lot of allusions to fantasy tradition in in a lot of your work, and uh, I think especially in in, in 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 some kind of fairy tale. Is there? A, I mean, were, were you keeping those conventions consciously in mind in, in working on this? Well, I was trying to I was trying to make. Um... The two, the two conventions exist side by side and giving them both a fair hearing. One that, that um, like if you, if you, you, can, you can be reductive about the idea of duende and talk about it in psychological yeah. terms. Um, or you can expand the idea and think of it in terms of, of um, well, uh, a spirit world, if you like, uh, which wants to cross over into our world, okay? So you offered those two positions and they're competing positions. The family is com- in competition to to make one of those preside. Whereas, as a writer, what I was trying to do was 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 make it swing back and forth, so that the reader would naturally take one position, but then would find that position undermined. So I, I was trying to simultaneously apprehend those two positions while I was writing it, and I was deliberately trying to make myself go into a space where I hadn't decided myself. Okay. Uh-huh. That makes sense while I was writing it, while I was writing it. And that, and that's why, um, really it, it ends in, in the way it does because, um, to have, to have, um, landed decisively in either of those positions would have betrayed the book completely. I think. Oh, I think so. I think the balance is what, uh, and, and I think you're right going into I guess this goes back to uh, I don't know if it's a technique or something that something that Charles Brown first observed uh, way back in the Facts of Life. He he'd read the Facts of Life and he insisted that he, he wanted me to read it immediately, which I'm glad he did and, and 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 to review it. But he said, "What's great about that novel, which he said he had not seen before, and I I don't know if uh, if I have, was that the bits that you expect to be fantasy are real, and the bits that you think are real turn out to be fantasy." In other yeah, words, for example, yeah, well, the, the dead pilot. Uh, well, that's clearly, you know, some kind of a, a, a fantasy image. No, it's not. There's a dead pilot there. Um, <laughs> and that, the was a, of, that was the most fun bit I had in writing that, is revealing that, that, 
the pilot yeah. was actually there and buried under the. Under I guess the we just. Spo- I guess that was a spoiler, wasn't it? Sorry, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe after ten years, it's okay to have a spoiler or so. Okay. <laughs> Let me ask you this. I mean, the book's called some kind of fairy tale. Is there something about fairy tales themselves that draw you back that you find attractive and interesting and difficult to walk away from? Oh, oh, these. Are- I think that these are the mothers of all stories, really, fairy tales. They are, um, you know, they're, they're, they're almost um, prototype stories. They don't, they don't have character, is what fascinates me about fairy tales. They have archetypes. They have archetypes and um, the, the terms of the, of the magic are, are clear and, in a way... The, the, the interesting thing about fairy tales is they never usually have fairies in them in the way mm. that we've been talking, talking about them. Um, what, what, they, what they have, um, I think it was Philip Pullman was talking recently about, he's just done a, he's just done a, um, a, a re, rewritten The Grim Fairy yeah. Tales. Yeah, and, he's probably, and he was talking about them as being masks. The characters in, in fairy tales are masks. In other words, psychological positions. That they that that we put on and take off at different times, and I thought that was absolutely fascinating because you don't you don't think in terms of character in in those fairy tales. It's pure story. You're living in the realm of pure narrative, and if you ever needed any affirmation that a story can work without linguistic decoration or without um, complex psychological analysis and all the the things that are supposed to make a literary novel great you ever need that sort of affirmation that uh, of the power of pure narrative then you just look at fairy tales and you ask yourself why do they work hundreds and hundreds of years on in in completely different places and why we tell these stories to our children because they've got such moral import um you know kids learn about about life and the nature of life and the nature of fear and the nature of love and the nature of hope uh, f- from these from these stories. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm drawn back to them time and time again. I love digging up new ones that I haven't found before. And luckily, there are always people working in the field mm. coming up, coming up with new stuff. And there are some fabulous commentators in the field of, um, of fairy tale. I mean, we, we we've sort of moved on from Bettelheim, haven't we? But we've got mm. Marina Wall and people like this yeah. doing do just fabulous work on this. One of the things that uh, I think C.S. Lewis said about, uh, I think it was his essay on stories, uh, it's always fascinating to me. He was talking about fairy tales, but he was also talking about myth, and I think specifically he may have been talking about uh, Orpheus, was that the way you identify a story like that, a story with mythical power, is that it can get retold in the worst, most awkward ways, but the retelling can't really ruin the story. In other words, the story has power, uh, retains its power because of the nature of the story itself rather than because of the, of the way it's told. So that if the Orpheus tale gets transmuted into a, a, a cocktail movie, if it, gets, if it gets rewritten by somebody who isn't even very, a very good writer, the elements of the story retain their power. Um, oh, oh, absolutely. The, 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 um, Funny you should just mention that um, Orpheus myth because to prove your point, um, I do some I do some uh, lyrics with a with a, um, a fantastic French uh, pop singer called Emily Simon, and mm-hmm. um, she's um, she's just scored the the music for the latest Audrey Tattoo, um, mm-hmm. you know Emily, uh-huh. Emily yeah. that movie. She yeah. just scored that. She scored. Um, the original March of the Penguins uh, music as well, not the Hollywood oh, version. And I do, I, I, she's, she's writing in English now, so she's, um, she asked me to collaborate with her. Well, um, a, a terrible thing happened with her, um, her fiancé uh, a year or two back. Um, he died of swine flu while he was in Greece. And she, she, um, she'd written this, she, I mean, part of her grieving process was writing. I mean, this is what, you know, crazy people do. And uh-huh. uh, she'd written this song, and it was way, way too raw. And she asked me to do something with it because, because you know, it just wasn't working because it was so raw. 
And I said, well, you know, just tell me exactly what happened. And, and then she described having to fly uh, across the Atlantic to go and see him in his oxygen tent and, oh, and uh, you know, in, in this, this just, she described it's like a cave of an oxygen. And, and, and it hit me that the Orpheus myth of going down into the underworld to try and bring Eurydice back was exactly what she was saying. She'd crossed the water which is the river Styx. She'd gone into a cave-like place, and some of the right. descriptions were just evoking this incredible Orpheus myth. So we took the myth and wove it into the song. And I think it makes a good song, by the way, but the reason mm -hmm. I'm telling this story is that she found it so healing really, to see things in those terms and to understand that the myth of not looking back is saying you can't keep crying forever, you know, that's what it tells you, and that's the wisdom of it, and that's the power of it. So, anyway, this this is just apropos of your comment there, Gary, about about the power of uh, of myths and stories like that. Um, I'm, 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 that's a very moving story. I'm wondering is there is there some place where we can hear that song at some point? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I can send you the. It's on. There's a YouTube. Um, Shall I send you the link, Jonathan? Sure, yeah, and I'll so, put it up with the podcast. Yeah, yeah. that'd be great. Yeah, she's a great. She's she's a great. She's great. And this terrible thing had happened, but but you know she 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 wrote that album and some of that music and 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 it, and it, and it, I think it helped her enormously just to to get. And we were using we were using this mythology as a, as a healing as a healing power. Mm-hmm. I've heard of that uh, happening before. There's even a field. I don't know if it's still active or not. Um, for, for decades now, there have been uh, music therapies. There's been art therapy. And uh, at one point, I knew somebody who was uh, a psychotherapist. Actually, somebody who'd gotten his doctorate in English literature and couldn't get a job, so he became a psychotherapist. In what he called bibliotherapy, which was exactly that sort of thing. It was finding the kinds of stories that would match the emotional conundrum that people would find themselves in a woman i remember one of his patients couldn't couldn't talk about her father couldn't deal with her father until he had her read i think jane eyre and suddenly everything she had to say about her father came out except it was about rochester of course my god that's brilliant Bri bibliotherapy i've never heard of it that's brilliant Oh, it's a terrific idea. I think the problem with its limited applicability is that so few people are willing to read novels these days. <laughs> in order to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. But then on the other hand, we presumably have the shared reservoir of story that we, you know, most of the time we're not even aware of consciously you know, in our later lives where you, know, you come across a story and it echoes back to something that you don't consciously recall. I mean, I'm sure that for any number of people who have never read the read Tamlin or any one of the Tamlin myths, nonetheless, the the basic story will be familiar again and again and again because of the way it's retold and reused. Yes, uh, I think so. I mean, the the, the interesting thing as well, uh, just to connect um, fairy and fantasy up with the, the the process of creativity or healing or whatever, is that in the in the Tamlin and Thomas the Rhymer myth, when these people come back. They are gifted or cursed with um, the gift of poetry, of, of, of literary creation. And I always find that kind of interesting that, that, you know, if you stray into fairyland, you come back as a writer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel one thing we should probably do for a second. We've talked our way around the new book, Some Kind of Fairy Tale, but we're sort of assuming that everybody who listens to the podcast has actually read the book. Uh, and I guess just to give people a very quick idea, it's basically the story of what happens 20 years later after a young woman basically goes away onto the hill off to fairy and the, and the lives behind that are left behind her parents, her boyfriend, her brother, their lives basically are irrevocably changed and deeply damaged in many ways. And then she shows up on the front doorstep 20 years later, completely unchanged, pretty much saying she's been literally off with the fairies which is not something that's very well received. That's the basic setup for the book. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And, um, and, and in it, as I was saying earlier, yeah, the, yeah. You, you know, the, the, the sort of narrative engine is, is that she's kind of sticking to this story and, um, and, and the, the, the family or some members of the family are trying to find alternatives to explain the story because they still love her and they want 
they want to help her and they want her to get through this. So that that's the tension of the story, if you like. But the, so so you know, it's it's this fight between the rationalist explanation and the the idea that there may well be a fairyland. But there's there's another um, kind of dimension to the, to the novel in that in that it's looking at this whole process of of aging and the, and the question of youth and flown youth, uh, lost youth. Or frozen youth in the case of, of people. I mean, I mean, sometimes psychologists talk about a Peter Pan complex, sure. don't they? About people who can't accept getting older. So that the, on, on, on one level, there's a kind of exploration of what, what's going on there. This, um, this uh, Tara has, has disappeared and has come back. Um, what has she done in, in the meantime? But she's, she comes back to not just her family... Um, to find that her, her brother, who was, I don't know, some kind of, uh, you know, hippie or wild boy, is now a very domestic family man, and he's changed completely. But her boyfriend, who was a musician, seems to be absolutely frozen in the time at, that she left. So there's an examination of this whole business of, of, of youth and ageing and, and nostalgia. I think I was going to say, yeah, one of the things that strikes me is, I, I guess when a fantasy novel asks questions about the real world, it, it, it's, it's, it, it gains resonance because obviously you're asking yourself throughout the story what really happened to her during these 20 years. But at the same time, you're asking yourself what happened or didn't happen to the other characters uh, at home. The, the, the parents clearly have in, in, in some ways settled into a, in, into a routine, which is described very well in the opening pages of the book. As you say, the, uh, the, the boyfriend is just somebody who has essentially done nothing in the last 20 years. Well, I think it's more than the, done nothing. He's been sort of shocked into stasis by the the um, the events of the girls, of, of Tara's disappearance, of him being accused of her possible murder, all this sort of thing. So his life is sort of shattered and stopped in that moment where Peter's life goes on and evolves and matures as he grows up. Uh, whereas Richie's kind of just stopped. And what's interesting is, well, I don't, I don't really want to give away the, the back end of the novel too much, how Tara's um, reappearance changes that, how it, how it impacts on the damage, the changes that have been made to both of them, both in, ter both in terms of Richie's relationship um, with Tara's brother and with their own lives and how they're seen. Because she, uh, Tara certainly is far from comfortable with the way he, uh, he's changed. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. yeah, that's right. And, and um, I mean, I guess what I was saying with, with that was that it doesn't matter whether Tara's story is true or untrue, what Richie could have done with was a, a fairyland himself <laughs> to make something happen. Yeah. And, uh, you know... He didn't. He didn't get that, and he needed it. And maybe some people need it. Um, mm -hmm. And this was a, like this was this was suggesting that whatever it was that that Tara did experience, um, sometimes we need that. Yeah, indeed. I think there are a couple of couple of other features of the novel which I thought were unusual in terms of approaching the way we the way we, we the way we treat fantasy. It seems to me that. The way we treat fantastic stories is one of the themes of that novel, and you have a you have a um, psychiatrist in it who's a very interesting character and not um, not exactly what would initially expect him him, him to be. Um, is that kind of a because again one of the questions that gets asked when you're reading a story like this well what would you know what would really happen under these circumstances and of course you'd pack the person off to a psychiatrist. Um, and I suppose in stories, I, I'm sure there are stories from 30 or 40 years ago where the psychiatrist would immediately throw the entire character into shock therapy or something along those lines. Um, but he seems more, he seems to be treating this with greater equanimity than I would have expected. Well, yeah, I mean, he, it was a, <laughs> it was a, it was a trick character really because he he he's a psychiatrist, but I made him. Kind of semi-retired and, and mm -hmm. somewhat outside the pale of, of, of normal um, psychological practice, and and what what he really is is a literary commentator, isn't he? Because mm. he takes Tara's story 
and he traces all the literary antecedents of her story and goes back and he mentions Tamlin and he mentions all the other things. And he he really, he looks at storytelling and he's looking at the tradition of fairies in storytelling and he's interpreting her story yeah. in the way that a, that a literary, um, uh, an academic, an academic might uh, in that, in that, you know, look, looks for clues in the language, looks for mm. clues in the, in the narrative that, that allude to other things and makes a kind of literary interpretation of Tara's story. So he's not, you know, I don't think, he, I don't know who ever would be a psychologist really like him. Well, he's really, he's a lit critic. He's a lit critic guy, isn't he? Right, exactly. But he's also that sort of... Force- well, he was fun to write. He was fun to write. <laughs> He's also well, that, he's more, go ahead, Gary. Sympathetic. Go ahead. I, I was no, going to say he's more sympathetic in that sense than he needs to be, I suppose. But, but you're right. It, it, he's by by looking at the sources of that, he's both validating and invalidating her story. Uh, he's validating it in that well, there are many stories like this, and if you if you believe in sort of the psychic truth of folklore, then she is partaking of this ongoing uh, myth. On the other hand. These are all the reasons why this could entirely be a fantasy on her part, because she could have read all these things and simply cobbled them together in a kind of subconscious way. Yes, that's right. I used, I got him to use the word. He he said she was a confabulator. I think that was the. Yeah, that was, I, that's a great word. A, uh, she, she's a, she's a confabulator, and mm-hmm. um, and 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 he was doing exactly that. He was legitimizing her experience, you know, on a on a on a psychological level. Um, but was claiming to be one step ahead of her all the time, and and as you know, he, he wasn't necessarily one step ahead of her. Right. And the and other. He, oh, go did, ahead. John. No, you go ahead. No, you go ahead. It's fine. Well, I just want. I was just going to say one other thing, which I thought was uh, a kind of clever gloss on the narrative was that the whole. Um, it's not a clever gloss. Actually, it seems to be fairly important in terms of that character. There's so many children in in your novels. We haven't even talked about the YA novels yet, but I mean, I'm going back to the facts of life and the limits of enchantment. And in this particular case, there's the changeling theme echoed with the story of a cat, um, which involves the, uh, the the younger brother who becomes a, who has his own story, and we haven't really talked about him yet, but he's to me, is one of the most fascinating characters because he echoes a lot of the young, a lot of the child characters that you've written in other fiction. Yeah, and uh, and also his name's Jack, uh, it's, it's got a certain fairy tale resonance about, you know, sort of becoming a. He has his own little rites of passage, you see, you know, his own little to mm-hmm. climb there, and um, I love writing about children. I mean, it goes back to what I was saying about vulnerability in the imagination. I think children are so much more vulnerable to the strange things that adults say and do, uh, that their imaginations are, are triggered and fired by the, the weirdness of which they have to mm-hmm. uh, And, and, and um, you know, um, I, I find it harder to write about boys and girls when there are not adults around, interestingly enough. Because I'm always kind of more interested in the dynamic that's going on between the adult and the child, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's I think that's what's going on. So there's, that, that's why inevitably there are quite a lot of family um, family tales. And even where I have written just about children on their own, then their parents come in a lot as secondary characters. Yeah. Because yeah, I mean that is something. I mean, I've read several of the young adult books. I've certainly read uh, Three Ways to Snog an Alien, Do the Creepy Thing, and Twok. And it, it occurs to me that you don't necessarily, when you write those, follow the oh, well. One one of the the most common approaches to writing why stuff, which is to get the parents out of the way, get the family out of the way, and let the child just become the uh, the, the main source of action in the story and able to act more freely. You keep them back in that family setting you keep parents around for them interact with that sort of thing yeah that, is, that you're right that is the classic thing to do with YA I mean it's it's why um, it's why Harry Potter is packed off to Hogwarts mm. really you know, yeah. so that he uh-huh. you know he doesn't he doesn't have any of that but again that 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 jumps you into into the walled garden and even in a even in a, a more naturalistic novel that's often what YA 
um, writers will do. They'll put them in a different walled garden. It's not a fantasy walled garden, but it'll be some sort of some sort of walled garden where where adults and parents don't have much of an influence, or they're ineffective, or or um, feckless, or something like that. Mm. You know, and it, I don't know. It's it's got uh, it makes good stories, but it's of less interest to me because of this. I guess this comes back to this group thing that I keep obsessing about and you know trying to get to the bottom of group mind and family mind and so on so so that's why i, get, I think why i keep reintroducing them and, and is it also a persistent feeling that the, you know that the walled garden in some in some sense what trivializes things or makes them in lacks depth and uh, resonance because it is walled off yeah but it's, it's almost too easy yeah. um to put them into this zone where um, you can enjoy a story and you can enjoy the outcome of, uh, of a story, but you don't have to relate it to this daily life that we live. Um, and that's my, that's my position, that the walled, the walled garden, and, and that's, you know, whether it's fantasy or realism, you know, is, is too easy, that we need to, we need to find out what is the leak, the leak from the, from the garden into this world. Um, that, 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 I don't know, it, it makes us think about how we live our lives and, I don't know, tries to throw at least some light on it, comes back with some grain of light from the walled garden anyway. Do you find it hard putting yourself into the position of children, when, or you know, teenagers, I guess, when you write those books? <laughs> teenagers, I think I've still got this reckless <laughs> teenager too, too near the surface for that. <laughs> I enjoyed writing those books a bit too much. Um you know these characters they they they're really there's too much <laughs> too much of me in them i don't want to say <laughs> i wondered about that i mean you um i, I, I want to ask you another question specifically about about that but one of the things i was curious about especially with with talk and do the creepy thing and i would think especially about the american reactions to that from from librarians and parents because you've got you've got your main characters basically committing crimes at the core of both of those uh, stories and, and and basically getting away with it. Well, that's probably because I did when I was that age. <laughs> doing all sorts of stupid things and 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 the you know that the absolutely now I think about it some of the stupid things I did. If I'd have been caught and put through the criminal justice system and so on, my life would have been so different. My life mm -hmm. really so different. And where whereas uh, I think. Just for a couple of years, I was inhabited by a goblin huh. uh, um, for just just for a while, and then it left me alone again. And uh, a different one came in, the writing one came in. Uh -huh. But 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 f for a while, I was you know I was up to stuff, not not dangerous or nasty stuff, but just enough stuff to that, that would have run the risk if I'd got caught of being mm -hmm. of being uh, criminalised. Um, Possibly sent to a borstal and all this kind of thing that that that, that happens. So um, I guess that's why that that came out. I mean, it seems it it just seems incredible to me that um, I didn't actually get caught for some of those things. And so um, and that's that's why Gary Twock and and do the creepy thing was was just some of that daftness. And um, I, I guess it was just waiting waiting to come out. I mean, I, it's, obviously it's all exaggerated in the in the novel well, yeah but uh, but it's, it's, it's it was very waiting to come out wasn't it it was waiting to come out and it's like it's not I don't, I don't feel necessarily guilty about it i don't feel sort of i feel sheepish about it um and it was a writing those was a was a was a good was a fun way of exorcising some of the some of the memories around those things i think but nobody objected to it because I've got, I'm thinking from the point of view of, of, of parents or, or librarians. People in the United States love, some people in some parts of the United States, love to find reasons to want to have books taken off library shelves. <laughs> and it strikes me that you've just given them a target as big as a barn door. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing, the, the thing is, is that... Um, in a way, I was exploring that stuff in, in a non-YA novel, The Tooth Fairy, years ago. Um, yeah. There was a lot of teenage stuff. And I mean, I mean, the, re the reason I, I wrote Twok is that there was an editor at Faber who, who really enjoyed The Tooth Fairy and asked me if I could write something for teenagers that was a bit like The Tooth Fairy, which is why I came mm. up with Twok. 
Um, and um, I had more trouble in, in America with, with the tooth fairy being on library shelves for adults and teenagers than I had with Twok or Do the, Creep, Do the Creepy Thing. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, uh, some teacher got in, in trouble trying to teach bits from it in, from school and uh, all this kind of stuff. Um, so so uh, I got I got more um, flack at that end from from that adult novel than than I ever heard about from Twok or Do the Creepy Thing. That's interesting. You told me once about having taught. You were teaching in a boys' school, or you were running a dorm, or something, and got in trouble. Do you know what I'm talking about here? I was teaching uh, in a. Yeah. Well, the story. Uh, 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 the, the, somebody told you to teach the students whatever they wanted to learn. Is that correct? Oh, this was this was this wasn't a, a formal teaching situation. This is what we don't have the same thing. Um, uh, you don't have the same thing in um, in the states because. All youth work is more crisis intervention, whereas right. we 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 have this um, more um, more informal kind of after school thing called youth clubs and and uh, and youth work in in the U, in the UK. And there was right. a there was a there was a group of young people who'd been who'd been given um, a, a sum of money to to organise a, a committee and say what they want. You know, this was in the wake of the. Of the youth riots in the dark days of Thatcherism. I mean, the, uh -huh. the city's burning down. I don't know if you remember the 80s, mm. but the, the the youth was in absolute ferment, and um, you know there the, the, there was riots and burnings, and 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 suddenly the government started throwing money at, at, at young people to try and find a way of buying a way out of this situation. It was because right. there was so much unemployment and so on. But anyway, one of the things they did was employ. <laughs> Uh, to get a youth committee together and they were given a budget and I was told they very clearly they had to decide what to do it what to do with this money and so on find out what they want and help them do it so I went down to this this place a residential center where they were all meeting for the weekend and they were all rolling up joints <laughs> and they were making such a bad job of it I thought the first thing I better do is show them how to roll how to roll a decent joint so the stuff isn't falling out and flaring up in their faces when they when they, when they were lighting it up. Now, I mean, you know, it's been a long time since I've smoked anything, but back in the day there, I thought, well, you know, that's what I've been told to do, and it was a good thing to do because it immediately, ridiculous as it sounds and cheap as it sounds, it 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 brought me their trust uh -huh. um, because it gave me a way in then to talk about drugs and to talk about different kinds of drugs and to talk about the kind of people that you might come into contact with if you start buying drugs, because often that is worse than the drug itself. And nobody ever says that to kids. Oh, yeah. It's like, you know, oh, smoking this might do this, but I tell you what, you know that bloke that you just bought it from? He's a really nasty piece of work and you don't want to get mixed up with that person. And, uh -huh. and all this sort of stuff. And, and to be honest, um, it gave me credibility and they would start to listen to me when I talked about this. So if I then said, you know, this particular drug I think is a problem because of X, Y, and Z, and they would they would listen then, because I hadn't started from a position of saying, um, I'm sorry, I can't work with you if you're rolling up a joint. Right. Uh, so, so that's what that was all about. And that was the work I did for um, seven or eight years, not teaching people to roll joints, but it was a whole political education project and, and a, a youth participation project. That was all the work I did before I um, I quit it and went off to a Greek island and wrote my very first book, Dreamside. Oh, this goes, that, that goes quite a ways back then. Yeah. I mean, yeah, just, yeah. I, I guess I love that story because there's something really um, satisfying about thinking of Thatcherite money being used to teach kids how to roll joints. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, is that the situation that I was put in was 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 absurd. I mean, this well-meaning organisation had had um, had, got, had decided that it wanted to do something for youth, and and just employing one person, i.e., me, to to sort out all these riots and and so on in the country. I don't think that was going to happen. And I just remember walking in, and these and these kids oh well, i say kids you know they're like between 14 and 18 just mm. looking up and thinking oh and i can see in their faces going oh here we go a bloody social worker, you 
<laughs> that's the last thing we need. And and that was the intervention I made at that time, and it and it and it worked well. And and then for the next seven years, we had a really powerful program going, and it was based on that. It was based on that outcome. Excellent. I I almost feel like that. that, that sorry, what was that, Gary? Oh, I didn't say anything. Oh, sorry, I thought you were going to do. I was going to say I almost feel there's one, one other book we should touch on before we perhaps begin to wind up because we are getting towards the end of an hour because uh, these things fly by. Your books are often about growing up, uh, or at least it, it comes in again and again. You know, when I read them, I notice it. And there's a, one book that seems to me to have a lot to do with growing up that we haven't discussed: Simple Goalkeeping Made Spectacular. <laughs> what can you tell us about this book, Graham? Well, um, I, 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 I was a goalkeeper for my school team and I was a goalkeeper for my college and I was a goalkeeper in pub teams and then I quit because I thought it was a bloody stupid business, you know, and some of the, some of the Sunday pub teams that I played for, the games ended in brawls, you know, mm -hmm. you'd get, you'd get, you'd get players who turn up and before the game, you know, uh, drink <laughs> six cans of Stella Artois and smoke 20 fags and then onto the pitch <laughs> and then often you know it would just be a punch up and and i think it was it was um it was i was in my 30s and i just thought ah oh, to hell with it i'm not doing this anymore and uh funnily, funnily enough it coincided with the time when i started writing seriously yeah uh, so um put the football boots away and picked up my pen um but then when i got into my 50s i got a phone call um, from a guy in London I'd never met who was a writer, and he said, um, oh, is that Graham Joyce? I hear you're pretty good between the sticks. And I said, what are you talking about? I haven't kicked a ball in anger in 20 years, and, and my knees are shot. I wear glasses now. I'm short-sighted. I'm chronically unfit. And, and you know, I'm, 50, I'm 52 years old. And he said, 52, lovely age to be a goalkeeper. And, uh, <laughs> I said, I said, you're mad, you're insane, leave me alone, go away. And he said, oh, uh, by the way, uh, the game is against Italian writers in Florence, all expenses paid, staying in a, in a Renaissance hotel, uh, and um, lakes of wine will be provided. <laughs> <laughs> when is this? Let me see if I've got a window in my calendar to do this. And... Uh, to to um, cut the story short, I went to went to Florence, played in the team, and um, here I am several years later, still playing them. In fact, we've got a fixture at the weekend. We're playing Scotland uh, up in Glasgow, so I have to get my gloves out. So I wrote a simple um, goalkeeping made spectacular, looking back <laughs> at playing football as a man and boy, and it was it did turn out to be very much. Again, you see, the family came in. I was yeah. talking about dad all the time in it. It was supposed to be about soccer. And, um, you know, he didn't know the first thing about football, my dad, but he, he'd give you an argument uh, about it all the time. And I ended up talking about my dad very much about it. So um, it started off as a, as a memoir about about football and playing, playing as a goalkeeper and ended up being um, a kind of exploration of family relationships and... and uh, Interestingly, one of the things that um, I, I, I looked into it was the idea of the other that you encounter in yourself when you're on the football field. Because, you know, I caught myself raging at this um, purple-faced, alcoholic German referee who was 20 yards <laughs> off the pace. You know, should have been calling offside when he was giving the, home, the German team a, a goal and everything. And I caught myself raging at this guy. And... You know, he'd given up his afternoon free to referee this game of silly middle-aged men in shorts, um, indulging their fantasies as international footballers. I caught myself raging at him, and I thought, who is this? This isn't you. So I ended up in the book talking about, you know, the encounter with the other inside oneself as well. So it, it ended up being a book not so much about football at all, oddly enough. And that book's not... It's not come out in the states, has it? No, I couldn't find a publisher for it in the states, Gary. Um, it's on. It's, it is on Kindle. Um, oh, okay. It's available on Kindle, so people can get it on Kindle in the states. But I couldn't get a, you know, a hardcover publisher for it um, in the states. It was, it was 
was too too sort of minority interest. Um, but it, it's it's a very different way. I mean, it's it's it's. Have you read it, Jonathan? No, I haven't. No, well, it's it's like I, I allow myself to be funny, uh, <laughs> or try to be funny in the in the book anyway. So it's very different. It's a very different voice I was working, and I was pleased with the outcome. It got got shortlisted for the Sports Book of the Year award, you know, to my amazement. Um, mm. In the year it came out, and um, you know, it was all it was all great fun. I really enjoyed it. Let me ask you one question, if, if you will, and I'll understand if you'd rather not talk about it before we wind up, and that is, you must be pushing towards finishing a new book by now. Yeah, closing in, closing in. I've done, um, I've done a, a sort of uh, three heavy drafts, and I'm in finessing mode now. Um, it, it, was this was this a roundabout way of asking me to say something about what? If are you willing to talk about the book, or, or would you rather keep it on on discussed until it comes out? No, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm feeling like I've I've done enough on it to to start talking about it now. Um, it, it, it's um, it's set in the year 1976. Yeah. Um, and it's set on the east coast of England in a place called Skegness, where I worked for two summer seasons as a student in a in a holiday camp. Um, I, I, I don't know whether um, Jonathan, you might be more familiar with the idea than Gary, um, but it, it, it's, it, it was basically holiday camps in those days were, were places where workers would go for their industrial fortnight holiday, and it yeah. was all kind of all catered and all entertainment. Butlins holiday camp, that kind of thing, right? It, it was Butlins. It was it was it was Butlins model. It wasn't actually Butlins. It was called Derbyshire Miners Holiday Camp, and. Yeah. Um, it wasn't just Derbyshire miners who went there, but that's what it was called. And and, and I was a I was a green coat where Butlins have red coats. This is where you, you wear a green blazer and you walk around organising sandcastle competitions and and running the dump derby and uh, and the glamorous grandmother competition and the junior bathing bell and all endless endless <laughs> endless sort of <laughs> enforced bonhomie day after day of endless enforced bonhomie and. Uh, I, I, I just felt that I learned more about life in my many years at university in those two summers, uh, because the the um, I was telling I was telling Jeff Ford at uh, uh, Toronto about this book, and uh, I used the trade a lot of the staff were rough I used the term sorry a lot of the staff were rough trade, um, which for some reason made him laugh a lot. I don't know why. But that's the only way of saying it is that you know the the the. the um, the, the girls who worked in the in the kitchens were scary as hell, and um, and used to grab your ass as you walked by all the time. And uh, you know some of the some of the uh, members of staff were drifters or or maybe criminals or whatever. And I thought I learned an amazing amount. And I I, um, I found out to my horror after working there a couple of weeks that a lot of the staff. Um, the children's entertainer and uh, the conjurer and so on, who'd been incredibly kind to me and had kind of a, a adopted me as a college boy in this strange world, were members of this racist party called the National Front, and they started oh. trying to recruit me into it. So all these incredible things that happened um, ended fi finding their way into the book, although it is a ghost story. It's a summer, it's a summer ghost story, and the the, the year 1976 was a drought year, a terrible, a terrible drought in England that year. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a swarm of ladybirds over a period of two or three days where you just actually couldn't go out. And the municipality had to hire people to sweep all the dead ones into huge piles and incinerate. And incredible. And so I called it the year of the ladybird. That's mm -hmm. the title. Year of the Ladybird, but I also think that the, the end of the 70s was a real watershed period for the way we live now, as opposed to the way we lived then. So uh, a real dividing time. How um, so? so? Well, I think that um, that that old way of life, that that really the, the the old way of life that used to send the, the workers for their two weeks at Butlins or these similar camps um, died out. Mm -hmm. um, People started going on package holidays to Spain. Thatcherism came in, and it made a huge um, division between what we would formerly have just re referred to as the as the working class or the blue collar, the blue collar labourers. It divided them very cleverly between the more 
aspiring blue-collar workers and those who would now end up being what we now categorise as the underclass, the benefits-dependent under underclass. And um, it didn't. Life wasn't like that before then, uh, and we live with it now. And we have our sink estates and the rest of it now. And um, working-class life certainly wasn't like that before that that period. And so I felt I felt that something very significant happened economically. We moved with the offloading of old technologies. We moved into a period of serious unemployment, which led to those riots and everything that I talked about earlier. Mm. Um, and then we had this this period post-Thatcherism, and I don't think things were ever the same again, and some things have been good as a consequence, and some things have been bad as a consequence, but I felt it was a real watershed period, and that's why I, I was fascinated to use that period to write about it. I mean, I'm making it sound more sociological than it actually is, because it, fundamentally it's a ghost story sure. in, a, in, a, in a summer resort, but these are kind of some of the undercurrents to the, to the ghost story. And if we're lucky, we'll see that, what, in June? Yeah, yeah, somewhere around that. Well, f fantastic. Well, I think we, we might sort of perhaps draw things to a close then because we have been keeping you busy for for an hour and this is our our second go at this. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I appreciate it a great deal. It was a joy talking to you in Toronto and a great delight talking to you tonight as well. Thank you very much. Oh, you're very, it's always a pleasure to talk to you two guys, certainly. I hope and, we'll get to see each other in person again sometime within the next year or so. Brighton. 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 Absolutely. Right, we we will reprise the bar there, and then okay, yes, yes, there will be rum. Well, we we will talk to Karen Lord about it and make sure that she brings some, and that we get to reprise it properly, or at least try and convince you to. Anyway, thank you very much, and Gary, I will talk to you next week. Next week, absolutely. Okay. Good night.